Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host, Timo Pranger, and my guest today is Dr. Kali Vogel, Clinical Professor of Equine Surgery at North Carolina State University. Hi, Kelly, and thanks for being here today. Hello, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind introducing yourself briefly so our listeners hear a bit about you before we talk about your publication? Sure. Um, I, as, as Dr. Pranga said, I'm a clinical professor of equine surgery here at NC State, and um, I do soft tissue surgery, so gastrointestinal um, surgery, as well as other types of soft tissue surgery, upper respiratory, oncologic. Um, but one of my um, research interests is definitely in the area of gastrointestinal um, research and specifically non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications and complications related to gastrointestinal surgery and, and treatment. Thank you. And that leads us um, nicely um, into the topic that we're going to discuss today. Ex vivo COX-1 and COX-2 inhibition in equine blood by phenylbutazone, phoenix and megalamine, meloxicam, and ferrocoxib, informing clinical NSAID selection. is the title of your uh, most recent publication, EVE, that we're going to discuss today. So to me, that sounds like a true research study, but with the goal to directly impact the use of NSAIDs in equine practice. Is that about right? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in um, in my area of research is just things that, that really impact um, clinical practice. And so this is um, a pretty kind of benchtop heavy research project that I, I completed um, but as you, as you detected or observed, I think it's um, hopefully done in a way that could, could be very clinically impactful. In other words, that uses um, clinically relevant non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications and uses them at doses that they would typically be used um, at in clinical practice. Yeah, and quite honestly, I think that clinical goal of this as you call it, benchtop um, heavy study was what made me interested in, in bringing it up in the podcast here today. So before we delve into your study, um, let's start with a simple warm up. Um, basically, could you remind our listeners of the NSAID medications that are available for horses, what they are typically used for, their adverse effects, and what the main differences between the non-selective NSAIDs and the newer COX-2 selective drugs are? Yeah, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications are drugs that are used to treat pain and inflammation, um, as most people know. Uh, those are drugs that you know humans commonly um, administer to themselves, as well as veterinarians administer to their patients. Uh, as For example, as a surgeon, I would frequently use drugs from this class, uh, both to prevent and treat postoperative pain and inflammation in surgical patients. And in the U.S., the most commonly available NSAIDs that will be used frequently in clinical practice are flunix and megalamine, or um, banamine is the trade name, phenylbutazone, and phyrocoxib. The two, first two, flunixin and phenylbutazone, are traditional or non-selective inhibitors of both COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes. And these um, COX-1 enzymes 
are, are important because they serve a protective function um, for homeostasis. So they serve to protect the mucus for GI mucosal surfaces. They uh, help with coagulation and they're important for renal homeostasis. In contrast, COX-2 enzymes are responsible for prostanoids that trigger pain and inflammation after injury. So the um, downside to these non-selective uh, inhibitors is that they block both of these enzyme pathways. So both the protective one of the COX-2 enzymes as well as the um, COX-1 or COX enzymes as well as the COX-2 enzymes that trigger pain and inflammation. So um, drug manufacturers decided that they would start to develop these newer COX-2 selective NSAIDs, such as varicoxib, that can only bind to the active side of COX-2 um, without actually binding to the active side of the COX-1 enzyme. And so these drugs then inhibit COX-2 enzymes with minimal reduction in the protective functions of the COX-1 enzyme. Meloxicam is another one that people may know about, and this is an NSAID that is available in the UK and in Europe. It's an injectable, it's available as an injectable formulation for large animals. And it's uh, technically most accurately referred to as a COX preferential NSAID. So it is more selective for COX-2, but it can also bind to active sites on the COX-1 enzyme, particularly at higher doses. So that's a lot of uh, information about NSAIDs, but hopefully that um, is a good baseline. No, I think that was actually, uh, that was a very nice summary. And so is it firococcyp or is it firococcyp? It's like potato, pota potato, <laughs> potato. <laughs> I'm going to go with firococcyp, whatever it is. Sounds good. So where does your, fader, uh, your paper now fit, fit in in this um, big picture? What open questions were you planning or hoping to answer when designing this study? Yeah, so I was really interested in understanding, again, you know, wanting this to be very clinically relevant or clinically impactful. I was under, I wanted to understand how these clinical doses of NSAIDs that we use every day in horses truly actually affect COX-1 and COX-2 in the horse. Most of the investigations of NSAIDs are in vitro, and many of them actually investigate NSAIDs that are only available to researchers or that aren't used frequently in horses or are using doses that are, are not the clinically relevant dose that we might use in practice. So that's really what the, and the question that I was hoping to answer. Okay, so I think the intent is pretty clear. So now tell us um, a bit about the, the study design and uh, would you also, because that's something that jumped out at me when I looked at the title of the paper, remind um, me and our listeners what an ex vivo study is. It sounds like it's somewhere between an in vivo and an in vitro study. Yeah, so that's a that's a really good point. So an ex vivo study takes samples from a live horse and then does um, testing on those samples. So for example, a lot of our um, a lot of our blood sampling is those are ex vivo um, research projects, basically, um, the in vitro would be um, just using, um, so not putting the drugs in the horse, but just putting the drug into the plate with the horse's blood. So does that make sense? So basically, yeah, you would have, you know, the comparison would be most of the NSAID investigations have um, blood that they've taken from a horse, and they put the drug on the plate, 
and then they measure what the blood cells do. Um, this I was hoping would be a more clinically relevant paper because we're actually giving the horse the drug, giving the drug to the horse, and then taking blood from the horse so that you have the entire whole body horse reaction to the drug, um, and then measuring the COX-1 and COX-2 as a response um, to the, the horse being administered the drug. Yeah, I thought that was um, an interesting point. And I believe you pointed that out in the in the paper itself, which, by the way, as a reminder to the listeners, following the release of this podcast, the publication, Dr. Fogel's publication, will be um, free uh, to access um, on uh, through the equine veterinary through equine veterinary education. So please have a look. There's more information than we can cover in the podcast. But that was one of the things that a lot of these studies have been done in vitro, and we're missing like you called it, the whole horse response to the drug in many of them. So, um, yeah, I thought that was very interesting, this part. So, yeah, now tell us about the, the story, the, the study itself, please. So this is a, the, we utilize what's called a, a randomized crossover design. So we had three horses given one of four drugs, and um, each drug was given uh, three doses at a standard clinical dosing interval. So, for example, flunixin and phenylbutazone were given at the standard every 12 hours, um, where firacoxib and meloxicam were given at their standard every 24 hours. Then there was a three-week washout period between each drug, such that by the end, each horse would have received each medication and had their blood sampled to determine the COX-1 and COX-2 activity. Um, one of the things of note is that um, this was a pilot study. So this was a study that had a, um, a pretty limited amount of funding and the number of horses that we determined both in, in terms of what we thought we would need for data, but also um, because of the funds available, the number was determined to be three. I think in, in retrospect, as with many <laughs> uh, research projects, larger numbers would have been ideal, but the funding limitations kept us at three for this study. And then, um, so then once we had the blood samples, we then batched those and ran those all as um, large batches. And so for the COX-1 activity determination, we utilized um, a uh, assessment that measured thromboxane B2. And thromboxane B2 is a, a pretty well-recognized surrogate marker um, to determine what the actual COX-1 activity is. And then for COX-2, the surrogate marker we used was PGE2. And that is a pretty uh, well-described surrogate marker for COX-2. And these are common commonly utilized methods to determine the COX activity. So what was not so commonly um, performed was the fact that we actually gave the horse the drugs and then measured the COX um, from the blood samples from the horse rather than doing all of this in, um, in vitro. Yeah, that, that, um, I think that sums it up nicely. And kind of once you, after you told us about the markers you used and, and how these drugs should act, I had a, pretty clear expectation for the results, to be honest with you. Um, so if if I had to guess a summary of the results, I would say from thromboxane levels, which you use as the markers for the COX-1 activity, remained high when horse received the COX-2 selective NSAIDs, uh, meloxicam and fero of firococcib, <laughs> and that the prostaglandin levels, um, your markers for the COX-2 activity, 
were similarly affected by the selective and the non-selective NSAIDs, PUTE and banamine. Is that what you found or did you actually find something different? <laughs> um, I think overall, that's a, that's a very good summary of what we found. In, um, in actuality, it was, it was close, but not quite to that. So um, because of things like statistics and significance, um, some of those things weren't, didn't quite follow what you would expect, um, but they were very close. So, uh, and this really, I think, had to do a lot with the fact that we, um, we were giving three doses and we measured Cox activity after each dose of drug, um, rather than just measure, measuring the Cox activity after the final dose of drug. And so why that becomes important is because, um, particularly in the case of firacoxib, um, we have, uh, firacoxib we now know needs a loading dose at that first dose. Um, but at the time this study was completed, we didn't know that about this drug. And so we were giving the labeled dose three times, just like we would for, for Flunixin or phenylbutazone or meloxicam. And so some of the things that we that weren't quite what we expected, um, I think, can be explained by that. Um, but at any rate, so what we what we found was that statistical significance um, was really achieved for a difference between flunixin and firacoxib for um, COX-1 activity after the first dose. So those two drugs were significantly different after the first dose. However, after the third dose, both non-selective inhibitors, flunixamegalamine and phenylbutazone, inhibited COX-1 activity more than firacoxib or meloxicam. So one um, thing I saw, I, I saw when I read the paper is um, it might just be a small um, difference, but what I, what we saw here is what I remember seeing or reading is that um, the thromboxane levels. Um, dropped after the horses received meloxicam and um, it showed basically that the or it looked at that at the beginning at least that the effects of the meloxicam weren't all that different from the effects of the of banamine uh, was that a surprising part at least i think that was a temporarily um a finding didn't stay like that throughout the three doses but was that something you were surprised about surprised correct uh, and i think um, the simple answer is probably not no, not necessarily. And it, it has to do with the fact that um, meloxicam, while being somewhat COX-2 selective, is technically COX preferential rather than COX selective. And so um, with high doses of meloxicam or chronic um, administration of meloxicam or just in certain individuals, um, those some individuals will respond differently, their COX-1 and COX-2 activity. Um, but ultimately, meloxicam did not respond exactly the way firacoxib uh, did. And I think most of that explanation has to do with the fact that meloxicam is COX preferential. So it can still inhibit COX-1 um, or reduce the thromb thromboxane B2 activity, um, even though we kind of think about it in the same category as firacoxib. It's not quite. Yeah, I thought that subtle difference actually made quite a, a difference here in the results, at least, you know, when, when you saw that that um, drop of thromboxane levels. And then that reminded me of, okay, one is preferential, the other one, the thyrocoxib is truly selective. 
or more selective. And then the other um, thing that caught my eye was the the somewhat selective effect of phenylbutazone. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing we might want to talk about before we talk about the phenylbutazone um, uh, selectivity is just um, also so the Cox the COX-2 activity. So we've kind of covered the COX-1 activity and how those were different for different drugs. But for the COX-2 activity, what, you know, what we found, especially after the third dose of drug, which I think is, you know, probably pretty representative of what you would have for a horse that's on one of these medications, is that all four drugs were really equally good at inhibiting COX-2 activity. So they should be equally good, therefore, at preventing or reducing pain and inflammation. The COX-2 activity um, after the first dose was a little bit tricky, and it was tricky, I think, for the same reasons that the COX-1 activity was tricky. So the farocoxib did not was not as effective at inhibiting COX-2 after that first dose, um, but we we are pretty sure that that's because we now know that the farocoxib le- needs a leading a loading dose of drug to achieve those appropriate levels. So. Um, and then I think, so now to maybe move on to kind of the interesting selective effect of phenylbutazone, I, I honestly don't have a great explanation for why phenylbutazone was somewhat selective, um, except to say that, again, it was only statistically significant after the first dose. So after the third dose, both drugs, um, both phenylbutazone and firecoxib were behaving more as we would predict. Um, so I think, again, you know, probably something to do with um, drug levels would be my guess. Yeah, it's interesting. It, 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 did you ever think like we should have just not <laughs> measured after the first dose and just like, you know, <laughs> looked at the results after the second or third dose that we really know what we are dealing with when they all have an appropriate level? Um, because it, it certainly probably made, made you scratch your head at, at some point until you realized, okay, it's, it's actually going where it needs to go um after we've administered a few doses right yeah i mean i i it's true you know when you have results that you can't explain you sort of wish you hadn't done that part but i think again you know just in this idea of being a very clinically relevant study i was interested in knowing okay are the cox1 and cox2 levels do they instantly go the way that we want when we give this drug because as a veterinarian right you think I've given a dose of phenylbutazone. Why is this horse still painful? And it's, you know, for me, I think it's given me maybe a little more patience when I administer an NSAID and it doesn't immediately give me what I want, or it doesn't, you know, maybe by the second dose of a drug, I, I really am looking hopefully for the response that I want rather than thinking, okay, it, you know, this horse should have every, you know, should have maximal effect for this drug within 30 minutes of me administering it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great information to have, to be honest with you. Once I've gotten over the confusion um, and <laughs> I understood it, I was like, this is really good to know. And it it, yeah. it made a difference. And eventually everything turned out the way you kind of expected it to. Right. So does that now mean that um, we have with these uh, um, selective NSAIDs, we have the answer to, to all our questions. So I do not have to worry about the kidneys or the large colon anymore when putting a horse on long-term NSAIDs with these drugs, or is that still not the case? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think we've, most veterinarians have probably seen complications with long-term NSAIDs, even selective NSAIDs. 
Um, you know, and, and in uh, the U.S., much of our farocoxib is actually an off-label um, use of farocoxib. And we have seen uh, overdoses or, or um, administration of doses of that particular farocoxib that are higher than they should be and definitely have seen some complications with that. So judicious use of NSAIDs is, is always a good idea. I think no drug is completely side effect free. And, you know, we, we have to admit that as veterinarians that, you know, anything we do can, can cause harm. We can, I think it's a good idea to try to utilize more selective NSAIDs when we know that this, you know, a patient is likely to need higher doses or a longer treatment term. Um, but regular blood work and examinations, I think are critical for, for any patient that you're um, administering NSAIDs to, um, to try to catch any side effects that do happen to catch them early. So this will probably really suit some people who say, well, they obviously don't protect the intestine and the kidneys as much as some people want us to believe. And I don't think they uh, treat pain as well as the traditional ones anyway. What do you, what do you tell people like that? Because I think we all have heard that argument. We might've thought it ourselves and, and, and treated the horse with a selective NSAID and said like, man, I think it would be better on um, off using but or banamine. But what do you, what do you tell them um, about the effect or the, the, the value of those selectives for, for treating pain? Yeah, I, I think, you know, these are, because they're clinical impressions, I think sometimes those are really hard to argue against. Um, but I would say that um, there are definitely blinded studies out there that in addition um, to this randomized controlled trial that, you know, says that you could not, that where they could not detect a difference between horses that were administered a selective NSAID or a non-selective NSAID for pain relief. Um, and so, you know, we completed one of those studies actually here at NC State, and there were most definitely clinicians here at the time when that study was completed who felt that their horse, when administered a, you know, a blind an NSAID that they were blinded to, that their horse was in too much pain and they pulled it out of the trial because they knew that it was on um, farocoxib only to find out it was on flunixin. So, you know, I think that that's the reason why blinded studies are important because clinical impressions are powerful. Placebo effect is powerful. And I think that, you know, if we, if we truly want to practice evidence-based medicine, we need to you know, we need to at least read and consider the, the results of the studies that we're doing. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good thing to keep in mind and kind of leads to my um, next and last question here. Um, and also the thing I look most forward to uh, when, when looking at a paper is um, the relevance of the findings in your paper for the practicing veterinarian or informing clinical practice, as you call it. Um, it can be difficult to extract that kind of information from, from any study. Um, and I'm not really surprised that this is what you decided to focus on, because I know that you always ask our interns and residents after discussing a paper, how is this going to change the way you practice veterinary medicine tomorrow? So, um, Following completion and publication of the study, what would you like to tell our listeners about NSAID use in horses in general and regarding the selective NSAIDs in particular? Yeah, I think um, the the portion of the paper, honestly, that I enjoyed writing the most was actually that 
that piece, the informing clinical practice, because that, you know, was really my hope from the beginning was to understand what's really happening when you give a horse an NSAID and, you know, at a, at a given a clinically relevant NSAID at a clinically relevant dose. And so those are, for me, those are the practical nuggets to take away from this paper. And I think those are also the things that I now am much more likely to consider myself in, in practice after completing this study. So things like monitoring blood work on any patient that's on an NSAID, whether it's a selective or a non-selective. Um, I am much more careful to define a frequency, uh, typically mine somewhere in the three to five day range, for checking renal values and albumin in a hospitalized horse that maybe has um, some hydration issues and has, you know, some expectation that they're going to be on a longer duration of NSAID use. In the dehydrated horse, I'm a lot more likely now to think about rehydration and addressing pain simultaneously, uh, rather than kind of pain first and then rehydrating when I get around to it. And again, the same kind of, you know, rechecking blood work, not just assuming that because it was normal before I started that nothing bad has happened. Um, I think that another nugget is this firecoxib loading dose. I think that is very important. Most clinicians are probably aware of that, um, but that it is different from the labeled dose. So it's three, it's, uh, three times higher than the labeled dose for that first dose. The other thing that um, is important to be aware of is the availability of injectable firecoxib. So that is likely to change soon, at least in the, in the U.S., um, and that may affect its use as a pain preventative for hospitalized patients. Not necessarily a practical nugget from this paper, but good to, good to know just about the drug in general. The other thing that I really liked, and this was something that um, the pharmacologist on the paper, shout out to Dr. Jen Davis, um, really felt like we should try to put in this paper because I think, again, this is pretty practical information. So we found that the COX inhibition of the non-selective NSAID, so both one and COX-1 COX and COX-2, lasted well beyond the dosing interval of 12 hours. And so what that means is that the, the pain relief likely lasted well beyond the dosing of 12 hours, but all of the protective effects that are of COX-1 that are being inhibited also lasted well beyond 12 hours. And so that kind of has bearing on how we use NSAIDs in practice and really provides additional reasons not to do the commonly practiced, commonly, um, practiced method of stacking NSAIDs or using multiple NSAIDs together. And it also explains maybe why we see side effects of NSAIDs well after the medication has been discontinued. In theory, and this is more kind of um, Dr. Davis's area, but in theory, this should also dictate a very lengthy washout period before you switch to a different NSAID. So if you think about a selective NSAID, given what we now know about the COX inhibition of the drugs and how long it lasts, it looks like a selective NSAID should, should have a washout period of about 48 hours, where a non-selective NSAID, even though the dosing interval is 12 hours, the non-selective NSAID probably needs an even longer period, so longer than 48-hour period of washout before switching to a different NSAID. And that's really counterintuitive, right? Because this non-selective NSAID has a dosing interval of 12 hours, um, but you should wait 48 hours before switching uh, to a different for, to a different drug. Um, and I think few veterinarians would probably think to give a horse 72 hours in between different NSAIDs. Um, so it's 
you know, maybe not all that practical, but it definitely kind of makes you aware of what's happening in the horse's body when you uh, give these drugs and also for, you know, many hours after you've discontinued them. So um, I think the other nugget that I would, um, that I took away from the project and hopefully others could too, is just how um, I think it's understanding this has made, made me much quicker to select pain relief from a different class of drugs, something like an opiate or lidocaine, when I think the inset is not enough, rather than trying a different inset um, or stacking inset, just so that I don't have to deal with the washout period or any undesirable um, side effects of the prolonged inhibition of COX-1. And uh, yeah, those are my yeah, nuggets. No, I think those are, yeah, very good, very good um, take home message, um, I think, at the end of this paper, and uh, quite a lot that, um, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the small number of horses in the study, but um, quite a lot of information um, you and I think everybody who listened to this can take away from it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Unless you have anything else to add, um, I think we've said everything that that um, will get our listeners informed and also hopefully interested in having a look at the actual paper. Yes, thanks. Thanks for having me and uh, talking about NSAIDs. Thank you very much. And um, that concludes our podcast for today. And I hope you all have a good day. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.